Dave Williams presents Conversations.buzz. Let's get right to it, and then we're going to have a nice chat. I'm looking forward okay. to it. Why? Why are you resigning? Or are you retiring? Is there a difference to you? There's, there's a difference. I'm retiring. Uh, although I just did sign a new contract last year for three years. I guess you could say I'm resigning because, you know, sort of an obligation to continue on for another two years beyond this year. But I've been thinking about this for, well, John says since 2012. I don't know <laughs> that I buy that because I keep pretty strict tabs on my assets and my future. And I think in 2012, I wasn't ready to retire. But I thought five to 10 years from now, I think would be the time. And, you know, I put it this way, Dave, it's pretty simple. Some people want to keep working until they die and some people don't. And you don't know how long you're going to live. And I have a lot of other things I'd like to do. I love doing the show with John. I've enjoyed it all these years. I mean, 36 years together. That's a long time. But there's other things I'd like to do, including traveling, volunteering, just getting involved in other things and just enjoying my full day. Well, you know, I just I just retired myself a couple of weeks ago. and uh, <laughs> Good for you. I, I tell you, there's nothing. And what is I, this you're doing? Pardon me? Then what is this you're doing right now? Well, this is something I don't have to do. I just, I enjoy doing that. Right. So, um, but I'm, but I'm curious, did did it, had it gotten to a point 36 years, that's unheard of in this business for any particular one show, uh, for the most part at the one station and with one partner all that time, uh, good heavens. Did it, did it ever become just kind of a, a, you know, slog for you that you had to drag yourself in every day and do the same old thing more or less and try to keep yourself pumped up a little bit? Well, you know, you have those periods. We all go through that where maybe the news cycle is slow and things aren't just hitting right. Um, it's never about me and John. Chemistry is always pretty good. I enjoy talking to him off the air as well as on the air. We've known each other even longer than we've been radio partners, three years longer than that or two or three years longer than that. So that's never the issue. But, yeah, there were a few times where I just thought, you know, and, you know, I got to be honest, here in California, the politics have changed. Uh, A lot of the listeners that we had have moved all over the country. They've left the state. They've given up on the state. There's a lot of them still listening to the podcast and streaming. But, you know, it hurts because the things that you were able to accomplish as a team before, harder to do now with the state of uh, California politics. Yeah. And well, and the overall lifestyle that, that, in, that, it, that uh, begins. And I'm wondering how much of that uh, has uh, been affected by social media these days and how much your show and how much what you guys do has been affected by the sudden idea. Some years ago, everybody said, Hey, I'm not anonymous anymore. I can do my own show every single bloody second of the day. Yes. On Twitter or what have you. And I don't have to think. I don't have to know what I'm talking about. I'm just going to argue. And yes. That's the, way, that's the way it often seems to me. And it's like, seriously, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with a bunch of, uh, and not everybody, of course, but uh, it, it, it has changed society. It just seems to me that everybody is angry all the time. Is that me? Did, did I change or did, did the world <laughs> well, change? You know, that's kind of the basis of our show. We, we, we've, we're a good vent for people's anger. Uh, that's what's happened over the years. Uh, John particularly gets very passionate and emotional and people related to that. They're listening, driving in the car and they're hearing one of John's rants about what's going on in the world. And they're saying, right on, that sounds just like me. He's talking for me. And then I'll chime in there. Sometimes I counter John. Sometimes I add to the passion. And, you know, you say there is a lot of anger out there. 
we've capitalized on a lot of that anger. I've got to be honest, but we channeled it to causes where, you know, certain laws change, politicians are removed, things like that happen. And I feel that's harder to do. That's another reason probably why I'm, I lean towards retiring in California because I like living here, but it's harder to do the things that we did for many years effectively anymore. Well, you guys uh, pretty much, uh, you, you formed your own mold in that respect because until you came along, talk radio was uh, was pretty gentle for the most part. Rush Limbaugh started about the same time you did in terms of nationally. Yes. But, uh, you know, so he, he took advantage of the, uh, of the anger and the passion about the national politics. And you guys certainly have done that too. But I'm just wondering, uh, you know, at what point did, uh, did you go, Hey, you know, this is it. We just got to keep stirring up shit every day and uh, <laughs> yeah. getting people all fired up. Yeah. It's obviously worked. Well, you know, honestly, the more California goes left, our politics is sort of right, right center, sometimes libertarian. It's a mix of things. Everybody likes to label our show, but California's definitely gone far left progressive. So there's a lot of easy targets for us, and there continue to be a lot of easy targets for us. It's just harder to get the base of listeners we have and what's left of them to really join in and try for effective change. That's been a more difficult thing the last couple of years as California has gone in a major, major far left direction. And I guess the joke is, well, maybe people realize if they have one party rule, how bad it is, there'll be a big revolt. I'm still waiting for that. It doesn't seem to be happening, does it? (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) I wonder how much of that is uh, voter disaffection. You know, people are just going, you know what? I've had enough. I got to tell you, honestly, that's that's been a big part of my retirement. It's like. All right, I am not going to sit here for another year of Trump stories and Trump <laughs> arguments and another presidential battle between the same people. I've just had enough. It's funny you said that to me because a few people said that. Don't you want to be around for next year's presidential race? I said, <laughs> not those same two guys again. No. They're both loony. One's almost 80. One is 80. One of them doesn't know where he is every day. And the other one is still trying to win an election that he lost. And he's ranting about conspiracies. I... I I said, first of all, our show is very local and California driven. So we covered the presidential race. We do every four years. But I'm not that hyped up about next year's matchup. Not at all. Yeah. You guys have stirred up a lot of shit over the years. Uh, and and uh, as you as you just pointed out, a lot of it was local. A lot of it. But yeah. it wasn't enough for you to sit in the studio and and rant. You took it out on the streets, man. You took it. Yeah. You took it to where the action was. Yeah. And, and that was, uh, that was, a th- that was actually a throwback to radio of an older, older era when there was more of that going on. How'd that come about? When did it start? When did it start? It's a pretty good question because we started in radio in New Jersey together, but we were DJs. We played music. So the first couple of years, we didn't really leave the studio, but we slowly got involved in politics. I mean, when you think about it, we started together in Ocean City, New Jersey. Atlantic City was the radio market. Atlantic City, wow, corruption there goes back many decades. It wasn't long before we ran upon corrupt politicians in Atlantic City. But we didn't really leave the studio. Uh, I would say when we got to New Jersey 101.5, which is Trenton, New Jersey, that was a big station in the middle of the state, had a lot of listeners. We got very heavily involved in politics. We started to get outside the studio a little bit, but it was mostly about appearing at rallies. When we came to California... That all changed. And it began with some of the things around three strikes and, of course, O.J. Simpson murders and all that stuff. We decided, let's get outside the studio. 
Let's cover some of these stories on the streets. Maybe there's a sex offender who moved into a neighborhood. So we positioned ourselves down the street from there. There's Scott Peterson who murdered his wife, an unborn child. We went up there to Modesto and stood outside of his home. We chased down Gary Condit. Uh, it just kind of fed on itself. When we came back to KFI in 2001, I think we really knew we wanted to make an impact. In fact, the first show we did when we came back to KFI in 2001 was a show on the road where we appeared in downtown LA. So we realized this, and you build a certain energy off of that. When people show up and you're just outside the studio, you're in the real world. You're not just two guys talking in a room. That really energized us and got us very going. So we planned a lot more of those uh, over the last 20 years. We've done a lot. And, well, it looks a lot more human than just a couple of voices coming out of the box, right? Exactly. There exactly. you are out there with your signs and your bullhorns and stirring people <laughs> up and, and, uh, and dealing, you know, dealing with the blows as they come. Speaking of that, did you ever get yourselves in serious trouble that you consider to be well, a serious problem? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that. There have been a couple of times where I wonder what was going to happen. And the example I can give you, because it always sticks in my head, was when Congressman Gary Condit, of course, was on the run. There were suspicions he had something to do with the disappearance of an intern named Chandra Levy. This is back in the year 2001. Big national story. So we went up to his offices up in Stockton, California. And um, we stood outside. We talked about the story. We asked for someone to come speak to us. They wouldn't. So then we opened the door and we went inside. <laughs> we started to confront some of his secretaries at their desks. John and I were pepper them with questions. And then I saw one pick up the phone and call the police. So, uh, and we did this all live on the air. We ran. And in fact, we ran back to the hotel room where we had the setup there and we closed the door and I kept thinking, all right, well, the cop's going to come and arrest us for what? Trespassing or something. This is pretty dramatic. But, um, that's probably the only time that I felt that something crazy was when we were outside of Scott Peterson's home. They did call the police, but the police just said to us, you know, you're allowed to stand on the street, free speech, just, you know, right. just keep your distance and don't get too crazy. So we did that too. But, I, I can't think of too many times. Uh, there was one time <laughs> when we did uh, a remote at a food stamp line up in the valley, in the San Fernando Valley. John started to read the want ads to people on the food stamp line. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you get off the government dole and get yourself a job? Hey, and I remember some of those people were, yeah, they were about to get in our face. <laughs> it's like another time, I can, I can go on forever here. We did a uh, remote from a homeless encampment in Santa Ana. And it wasn't homeless people. They were pretty chill, but activists showed up. You might call them pro-homeless activists. And they just started pushing and shoving and getting in our face and yelling. And I thought, you know, there could be a fight. Who knows if they have a weapon? We had a security guard. He's really good. He was on top of it. But, you know, I, I have to say a couple of those times, I felt a little nervous about that, about that. Has management always supported you? Almost like 95% of the time. It's just a couple of small times when they might have said, Eh, maybe you shouldn't do that. It's a little over the line. But yeah, in fact, when we did the show, when we returned to KFI in 2001, then we went downtown and it was something to do with uh, immigrants. Uh, we got a lot of negative coverage from the local media, you know, the LA Times and that sort. But our then general manager of the radio station, Greg Ashlock, went out and spoke to the media uh, the next day and he read a statement and he was supportive of our right to be there and our right to cover the story. So I would say most of the time, management's been very supportive. There was a time, and this goes back to 2011, where, again, we got involved in the issue of illegal immigration, and we gave out the cell phone number of an activist, and he caused a lot of trouble for us. He uh, 
went to management. He demanded that we be fired. They said no. They stood by us. But they had to really placate him and his activist groups to make the story kind of fade a bit because he really, really wanted to get us off the air. And he was joined by some other activist groups who were big. But the station stood by us. They just said, you know, keep it cool, keep it low, move on to other topics. And we did. And we, we, we wrote it out. Well, you got the U.S. Constitution behind you. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, and also, uh, you, you guys were the cash cow for KFI for many, many years, the entire time you've been there. So, uh, management had to have you back for that reason. Although they also live, the, uh, the management people and the, the salespeople and the, and the whole staff, uh, lives in that community with all sides of people. And, right. uh, I suppose they had to, uh, you know, they had to, they had to keep a certain amount of distance, but on, in your position, you and John had to push that envelope, right? I mean, mm. you, you got to find out where your boundaries are. It's like, it's like being a kid. It's like growing into your teens and saying, what can I get away with? And what do I, when do I have to stop? Yeah. I mean, most of the media, particularly out here is pretty placid. They don't cover things aggressively. We realized that pretty quickly when we came to KFI back in the early nineties, we thought, you know, I think there's a place for us here to speak for people because reporters don't do it newspaper writers don't do it. We're going to do it. And it's interesting that you mentioned that we've been a cash cow for radio, because when we came to KFI in the 90s, what was just beginning to happen was live endorsements, uh, endorsement ads that just started to become a thing. And we were one of the first on the station to start doing them. And advertisers began to connect more with listeners. And because we were endorsing the product, mentioning the phone number, driving the sales, it became a big deal. In fact, uh, we were paid pretty handsomely for those endorsements. And the other thing is, which I've always enjoyed, when the activists would call the sponsors, as they call them, to complain, some of them would say, ah, get bent, get lost. Yeah. We love John and Ken. We believe in what they're doing. Uh, their listeners support us with their business. You go find somewhere else to complain. That was a really good feeling. One uh, highly publicized controversial moment in your careers together uh, was was the Whitney Houston thing where the two of you were apparently, and there's a reason I say apparently, uh, suspended for a week for comments that were allegedly made about Whitney Houston after she died. And I've read several different uh, accounts of that, and they all seem a little pat to me. <laughs> it, it, I, n- you know, just a, a kind of a straightforward, unbiased news report aspect. But I got the, I got a sense somewhere along the line, and I can't quote it for you, but I got the sense that the way it was being explained isn't exactly what happened. Maybe you mm, well, clear that well, up. Well, I mean, I can say exactly what happened and what caused the uproar. Do you remember Don Imus? Sure, absolutely. And his infamous comment about nappy-headed hoes. Yes, yes. I don't think this was that long after that. Uh And it was the use of the same word by John in reference to Whitney Houston after she died in that bathtub in that hotel room. But wasn't he making reference to something that Clive Davis said? Uh, You know what? You're going to talk to him tomorrow. You should ask him. This is 2012. My memory is a little bit... uh, all I know is, you know, we have a dump button. I sat there and listened to it. I think you might hear me chuckle. I didn't think anything of it at the time. Yeah. But this was in the early days of stuff being recorded and disseminated. You know, and there weren't right. podcasts yet, but there was a way for people to listen to parts of the show. So 
one activist got hold of it, posted it everywhere. It became a big deal. And yeah, that was a problem for us. In fact, that was the one time where I couldn't believe it because one night I came home and about an hour or two later, um, Channel 4 was at my door. And I'm like, what? And I knew it was about that. But obviously, so I, I just turned off the lights. You know, it's like it's Halloween. I want people to know I'm home. And I, <laughs> and I kind of hit around the back of the house. This reporter actually walked around the side of the house and I tried to peek out and he spotted me. Ken, just one quick question. Uh, first of all, you know, I didn't say what was said. I'm not using that as a dodge. We're a team together. John did say it. I didn't correct him or interject. And most importantly, I didn't hit the dump button. But, <laughs> you know, all of that is history. Yeah, we were suspended for a couple of weeks. And again, it's about activist groups. Most of the time, they want to get involved because it gives themselves a name for their cause, maybe helps them raise some money. So they try to really stir the pot. And in this case, yeah, they tried to get us fired, but they weren't successful. And again, that's another example of management sticking behind us. Um, they did a lot behind the scenes to meet with people and to placate the whole story. And it right. you know, worked out for, we went on to even more success. Yeah. Well, it, as it turned out, it seems to me that it was a, a convenient way of letting the thing cool down. Right. right? Have you guys right. gone for a week or two and have everybody still talking about it? And then uh, by the time you come back, it's like everything's good between us and the management and we're going to move on here. So mm-hmm. good for you. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you know, it was, it was an unfortunate situation, but it didn't turn out so bad. Uh, at what, at what point did you start to get the, the heavy criticism from the local media and, and, uh, the, you know, the kind of pushback that you're talking about where some, some guys actually at your door, I suppose that was just a, a short, uh, a bad, a slow news day, but. Wow. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, particularly, there's two phases to that. I mean, when we first came to KFI Los Angeles from New Jersey in 1992, oh, yeah, all the radio columnists, and there were more of them then, were very negative. Who are these guys? Why are they here? But it turns out the reason for that, as I discovered looking at this years later, is that the guy we replaced apparently had connected with these radio writers. They were pals. So he got dumped. We replaced them. And they decided that uh, they were going to take his side, even though they didn't know our show and probably didn't listen to it, and just decide that we don't belong here. So they wrote those kinds of columns until like a year later, we started to score big ratings. (laughs) Then that kind of died down. Then it more shifted to writers for the Los Angeles Times who just felt like, um, and I think I can quote one of them, John and Ken don't do nuanced debating. And they're like a couple of kids with crayons, the way they talk about the details. I can tell you, this is the exact words of an LA Times columnist. Yeah. That, And I'm thinking, wow, talk about lack of nuance. You write one short column on an issue. We spend weeks and weeks on an important subject, explaining every aspect of it, and we're not detailed. Yeah. We use crayons. That really infuriated me. But obviously, politically speaking, ideologically speaking, we're diametrically opposed from just about everybody that's ever worked at the LA Times. So you have to expect that kind of criticism. Does it bother me? No, because we still have lots of ratings and lots of listeners. Yeah. Well, I worked in LA for 12 years and I listened to you guys for uh, that entire period. And the one thing that always impressed me, whether I agreed with a point or not, maybe sometimes the professional in me thought, nah, you're come on, you're pushing a little bit too hard here. You're stretching that envelope a little more than you really need to. And of course, what do I know? I haven't got your ratings, but, uh, <laughs> but I did, I did, I did early on come to the conclusion that, uh, you're not only very effective 
at getting an audience attention and holding it, but that right. you really put in a lot of work, a lot of research in everything you did. And it's easy for people to boil it all down to one little turn of phrase or an accusation that isn't at all accurate. But uh, you guys are smart. I mean, you are intelligent people. And to me, that was that was the glue that held it together because you could have gone on there and it just had John ranting and you doing movie reviews. And, uh, you know, after a couple <laughs> of months, nobody would have paid much attention. So I yeah. congratulate you for that. Yeah, you know, and you're right. Certain phrases from our show, which are boiled down to the anger, you may remember Heads on a Stick. Yeah. Heads on a Stick became a popular rant or carry them out nude was another one dealing with the politicians in sacramento and raising taxes people may hear that and say oh heads on a stick that's nice you want to return to barbarian times and carry out (laughs) politicians heads on spikes very cute but it cuts through and it's something that people can use to to sort of channel their anger particularly when it came to that was like part of the big tax revolt but you're right we would we spent a lot of time both of us reading John reads a heck of a lot of nonfiction, a lot of history. I like to read the inside details and the stories involved in the stuff that we do. We don't come on and forum, but because we come from, I would put it, a more emotional, basic viewpoint where people can really understand. We don't speak in jargon and long expressions like politicians like Gavin Newsom who have to use all their tech jargon. We just cut through with the plain, simple truth. We just call ourselves logical. We're like the logical party. Sometimes it doesn't seem like a compassionate thing to do, but it's the right thing to do on an issue. Say, I'm referring to the homeless. These are the kinds of tough decisions that politicians really need to make. And instead, they don't. They don't. uh, They make up stuff. They do a dance. They use uh, cliches. They just want to get rid of the reporter. We don't work like that. We've always been very plain spoken. And, and sometimes it just comes down to a couple of harsh lines like heads on a stick. Well, the other thing that, that uh, struck me very, very early on in listening to you guys, is doing, there is absolutely no phoniness here at all. And by phoniness, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not talking about uh, um, putting on airs so much as the way you speak and the way you talk to each other and to your audience. It just, uh, you know, I mean, Look, I've been in radio for 54 years, and I know how hard it is to sit behind a microphone and not be phony at times. Right. To to use phrases that are cliches and to say things the way people expect you to say. I mean, you're, you're not even thinking about this. This is just how we talk. But you guys don't talk that way, and you never did. And it always came across as a uh, yeah, yeah. clear Yeah, you don't want to get into announcer speak. Right. And it's funny you said that because sometimes when I'm on the air alone, John's on vacation, it does kind of swirl around in my head. It's tougher to be conversational when you're by yourself. Sure. So sometimes I'll draw in one of the newscasters to get involved in the conversation because that puts me in the mode that you're talking about where it sounds very natural, very easy, and the conversation is easy to follow. And we talk very fast, but we talk like anybody else at the kitchen table, at the bar, in the backyard. That's mm-hmm. something that I think our listeners have always related to that they didn't always hear in talk radio. And I think you're right when what you said before. We came along at a great time because, you know, we were both DJs, but, you know, we got, we paired ourselves up and we weren't really necessarily thinking about talk radio because we were still playing music, even at the first station and the second station. But we were watching what was happening in talk radio with shows like Rush Limbaugh. And we were seeing things were changing. The AM dial was being turned over to just pure talk. And then the politics added to it. We came to L.A. 
and then the stories, particularly the local stories. Everything just gelled perfectly at the same time there in the 90s into the 2000s. And uh, I got to be grateful for that. It just worked out really well. Look, I'm going to let you go here in just a minute, but there's one thing okay. I do need to touch on because uh, I'm going to talk to you for just a moment about a very close friend of both of ours. David G. Hall brought you guys out from the East Coast, right? And uh, that was the beginning of uh, KFI, more stimulating talk radio or whatever I... whatever it was called at the time. And I worked with David 40 years ago in Sacramento, and we've been close friends ever since. The guy's an absolute genius. I'm just wondering how much of uh of his uh of his brain and his ability to work with people was an influence on john and ken as we know it i am really glad you brought him up because i thought about this this morning and i said oh i gotta bring him up but you just did i would have almost forgot about him uh i have to say i owe a lot to david g hall because of two things two things or more but first of all you are right he came to New Jersey, sat in a hotel room and listened to our show and decided that we would work in L.A. And he brought us to L.A. It was done very covertly and kind of funny because he had not dumped the guy that was on the air. <laughs> That's another story. But sure. he believed in us. And in fact, after we got off to a rocky start, he was very kind. Sometimes he'd write a couple of memos about things that he observed and things that he thinks that maybe we want to tweak. And a couple of times he'd come in and talk to us. But he knew. He just knew instinctively this is going to work. Give it time. Yeah. And when the stories came along that really held us kick in and our ratings kicked in, that's all credit to him. He didn't blow it up. He didn't get emotional with us. And I got to thank him again. He brought us to New- out of New Jersey to L.A. in 1992 and then again in 2001. Now, we left KFI in 1999 to go to another station to do to try some. To, we were syndicated and the bosses, not David G. Hall, but his bosses didn't like the syndication idea. So we were always at odds. So we left in 1999 for another station, and they fired us. It's the only time in my radio career I've been fired. And in 2001, David G. Hall brought us back to KFI. He knew we were the perfect fit. He stood behind us. I don't know that everybody else in the building did, but he did. And I got to thank him for that. And he has a very unique style. And you say you work with him. Uh, I call him sort of like a poker face. You can't really tell what's going on there most of the time. But when he speaks, which isn't often, it's going to be a very salient point. So you you want to listen, you want to absorb it because it's going to be important. Well, he's on your side. You know that every minute. Yeah. All right. So uh, what are you going to do? What are your plans now? It always seems a little. It seems a little weird to me. It's like you've got you've got this long term contract. You've been working there at the radio station, the same station, essentially for thirty six years, and right. and then you give two weeks notice or whatever it was. Uh, you know, so you got to go back in every every day and talk about this some more. Um, yeah, I still got about three weeks left. Uh, I don't have any definite plans. The holidays are here. Uh, I'm thinking about all th- sorts of things for next year, which include travel. There's a lot of people I want to see because I'm from the East Coast that I haven't seen in years. That'll be part of my travel plans. I'm looking into volunteering somewhere. I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll do a podcast, but <laughs> um, there's so many of them, Dave. I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much, Ken. I really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, I appreciate your time this morning, especially since, as far as I can tell, you haven't really talked to anybody else since uh, the announcement was made. No, this is the most time I've spent with him. I did a short uh, newspaper interview. That's it. Yeah. All right. I appreciate you reaching out to me. Thank you. Have a good day.